Yeah. With a personality like yeah. President Trump's, how far do you think he can extend that disorder onto the institutions? You know, this is going to be the ultimate stress test, and I think that's why we're all so stressed. Because given his personality, there is no limit. There's no limit to what he's uh, able or, or willing to do. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. All right. Good morning, Perry. Good morning, Ed. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Doing well. We're getting close to the election, and you can feel the fever pitch hitting its peak. Uh, How do you feel about that? What's this been like for you? Well, probably like most people, I just wanted to get it over with already. It's been a period of time where... You know, thinking about politics is not something I enjoy doing every day, which probably surprises some people because it would seem as if I'm a person who likes politics. But what I really care about is ideas and the chaos, the back and forth, the name calling, the the weird, dark energy that's in the country right now, the divisiveness. I don't like it all. And I, I don't like having to confront it and talk about it. I wish we could just be mostly talking about ideas. Yeah, I think that this goes back to what Stuart Stevens said in uh, our first podcast, which is that, you know, the the benefit of a civil society is not having to think about politics every day. And Trump denies that to the public because by definition, given his kind of his approach and his mentality, he has no choice but to make it about him. And uh, that unfortunately makes uh, our lives more about him than, than they should be. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today with John Gartner. I mean, this is a special edition because we are, we normally turn this over a few days time and here we're going to turn this almost right away uh, simply because the election's coming up and, you know, we want to talk about this movie that we saw unfit uh, earlier this year, Ed, about the diagnosis of the president. And John Gartner is a therapist who is heavily featured in the movie. Yeah. For the benefit of the audience, uh, you know, just by way of background, you and I watched a documentary at the tail end of the summer together called Unfit. And um, our guest today, uh, Dr. John Gartner, was featured prominently in that movie. And I think why we were struck by it and what we really found interesting is that this was absolutely a documentary designed to address the president's behavior and who he is and this presidency in whole. But what was interesting is that this was not a policy piece. This was not, there was nothing in here about the arguments, whether or not lowering the corporate tax rate was a good or bad idea, or whether, you know, using tariffs as a trade weapon is a good idea. There's nothing in here about tightening immigration policy or having a preference for conservative judges. There was really no policy in this movie. What this film was about, was asking the question whether or not a person that has this kind of personality, specifically a malignant narcissistic personality disorder, uh, can be entrusted with power. In essence, the question you and I have, have, have asked, should a person of this category ever be in that seat? 
and it's a controversial, you know, question because uh, I think people will rightly ask, well, how can you diagnose someone from afar and know that this is what's happening? And um, so we might be, you know, triggering a few people with this episode, but we're going to give it our best shot to at least uh, get his point of view and his argument that he made in the film. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, what we're trying to analyze here is most importantly, what protects our institutions and our democracy? And the question is, does a malignant narcissistic personality disorder put those institutions in jeopardy? And if it does, what does that mean for us? So I'm excited to get into it with him. Our guest today is Dr. John Gartner. He is an American psychologist, psychotherapist, author, and former assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Gartner is a psychotherapist with private practices in Baltimore and Manhattan, where he specializes in the treatment of borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, and depression. He was a professor for 28 years at Johns Hopkins University Medical School and is a widely published author of books and of articles for scientific and other journals. In 2017, Dr. Gartner founded Duty to Warn, an organization of mental health professionals and laypersons who consider it their duty to warn patients, clients, and the community at large when aware of potential danger. So welcome, Dr. Gartner. Uh, So give us a little bit about your background and how it is you got involved in this film that Perry and I have been talking about. Well, I was just a normal psychologist before Donald Trump came along. But I did train with uh, one of the world's experts in what is actually kind of an obscure personality disorder. It's called malignant narcissism. Uh, This scholar, uh, Otto Kernberg, is the most famous living person who studies this personality type. But it was discovered by Eric Fromm, who was the famed psychoanalyst who helped found humanistic psychology. He himself escaped the Nazis, and it was his attempt to understand the psychology of evil. And it has four components, narcissism, but also antisocial personality disorder. So these people are criminals, they're liars, they're predators, uh, uh, and also sadism. So they enjoy harming and destroying and creating chaos and spoiling and destruction turns them on. And they're also paranoid. So everybody who isn't totally worshiping them is an enemy that they need to destroy. And this personality type is what you see in a Hitler or Stalin, you know, these kinds of authoritarian strongmen. You said you had Tim Snyder on your show. He is describing in political terms, in you know, real world terms, and not psychoanalytic terms, but this is the psychology of those people. And so knowing, being trained by Otto Kernberg, when Trump came along, I realized, oh no, this is it. This is the American Hitler. You know, when they say never again, they mean be on the alert. Be on the alert that another sadistic, uh, you know, narcissistic, grandiose, destructive uh, madman with you know delusions of paranoia, you know, that he can demonize, you know, m- minorities. He can demonize the opposition. He can demonize the press. You know, there are suddenly these are all people who who should be persecuted and jailed and you know criminalized and attacked. You know, he can mobilize that kind of destructive energy on a mass scale. And so I early recognized this is it. This is not a drill. This is, this is, I, I was, I guess I was the psychiatric Paul Revere. <laughs> I never, I never used that term before. I wish I had, I wish I'd come up with it sooner because I think that's really it. I was just giving a warning. It ended up with putting a petition online and forming an organization of mental health professionals called duty to warn. But that's the point. It's kind of a bit of a, a pun, but also a, a general reference to 
as mental health professionals, we do have a duty to warn. When someone's in danger, we have a duty to warn them. You know, there was a famous case called the Tarasov case where uh, someone told his therapist, I'm going to go kill my girlfriend. And because he had confidentiality, he didn't say anything. He went and killed the girlfriend. And the girlfriend's family sued him and said, you know, you had a duty to warn her that he was contemplating harming her. So she could, and so I feel if we have a duty to one patient or one person who might be harmed, what's our duty to humanity, to the millions of people who could be harmed by kind of an early warning alert that this guy is the real thing, that he's dangerous. So we were talking about having him removed under the 25th Amendment, like a month after the inauguration. Help us understand this idea of malignant narcissism. Is there yeah. a scale of it or is it binary? Are you one or not? Or is it if you are, there are varying degrees? Yeah. That's a great question. That's a great question because we believe all personality disorders are on a spectrum. So if I would say if, if it's a matter of degrees and, we, and the scale was like one to 100, I would anchor 100 at Donald Trump. In other words, I, I've never seen anyone even half as bad as him in my career. And I'm saying I was trained by this weird you know, obscure, famous, but you know, but very specialized, you know, brilliant person who who kept the tradition of looking at these really evil characters alive. But this is like so much worse than anything any of us have ever seen. It's like a nuclear malignant narcissism. He's from a psychiatric point of view, he's that bad. And so I think there's nothing he's not capable of. And so that's where I think we really need to be prepared for. You know, he is going to attempt a coup in this election. It's in his character. And that's what I keep trying to explain. Knowing this personality, I can predict what he's going to do. Okay. He's not going to gracefully uh, go away in the helicopter. How does someone become a malignant narcissist? Is this a personality disorder you're born with? Is it a chemical, is it a chemical problem or is, is it a result of trauma in childhood? And is it treatable? Do do you, have you treated patients and uh, help them make a change? You know, one of the most important things to know about malignant narcissists, and Kernberg is very explicit and extreme, uh, uh, seemingly emphatic about this, they're untreatable. They're untreatable. They're, they're irredeemable. They can't be fixed. Oh. It, the most important thing you can do as a clinician, he felt, was to identify them and then get as much distance between you and them as possible. That this is essentially like a deadly viper. That you just back away from the malignant narcissistic patient. No, don't make a second appointment. You know, refer them to a clinic, whatever. You recognize that this is a dangerous person who destroys the people around them, who doesn't, you're not going to redeem them. They're going to consume you. Is that Uh, unique in psychology or are there other disorders? Yes. No, it's unique. It's unique. It's the only one. That's why if every of every disorder in the DSM, this is literally the worst one he could have. If a paranoid schizophrenic, that would be okay because if he was talking to the TV, you know, people might just, you know, kind of take the remote out of his hands, but uh, <laughs> the nuclear codes. But this is really the personality of someone who does successfully seize control and then sort of immolates everyone and everything around him. You know, a lot of people might be asking, um, and I think fairly, how is it that you can diagnose someone who you haven't met, you haven't had an opportunity to examine, even though you are a professional in the field? So talk about that. And if you would go into uh, the Goldwater rule, mm-hmm. which was such an amazing uh, thing to learn about through the film that you were in, uh, because I think people would love to hear that story. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to know that you guys are such fans of hashtag unfit. It's really interesting to go into the actual history of the Goldwater Rule because most clinicians uh, don't even know what the Goldwater Rule is. It's so obscure. But it came up in 1964 during the uh, election where Gary Goldwater was uh, uh, running. And they basically, uh, what Lyndon Johnson did was want to make him look like he was crazy. Well, this Fact magazine actually put out a survey. They said a survey of psychiatrists. They actually were dishonest in the way they processed the information. And the magazine was actually journalistically dishonest. And they were sued and they deserved to be sued. But anyway, as a survey said, a thousand psychiatrists say Goldwater is unstable. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he actually was not unstable. Uh, it was really actually untrue. He was conservative, but he actually was not unstable. Um, and so he, he sued them and he won. But the, the profession of psychiatry was embarrassed, you know, because they felt that the, the psychiatric terms had been thrown around in an irresponsible way that had, you know, affected an election and they didn't want the field to be used that way. So actually the, the very first, I actually interviewed the last living member of the American Psychiatric Association Ethics Committee that drafted the Goldwater Rule because I wanted to talk to him about it. And I said, because we've had a change in our field. The change is we've adopted a whole new diagnostic nomenclature. In 1981, we adopted a, a diagnostic nomenclature that's based on behavior. So observable behavior. So when they're saying these people who were writing to Fact Magazine were saying these sort of irresponsibly sort of Freudian things, I don't mean that for being Freudian is irresponsible, but they were, a, a good Freudian analyst would never make these kinds of conjectures about someone they hadn't seen because it had to do with his intrapsychic processes. So he's a latent homosexual or he was scarred by his potty training. Uh, and these were sort of verbatim quotes from the psychiatrist. So of course they couldn't know that. So it was this kind of irresponsible thing. But with the diagnostic system we have now, the, the breakthrough of the DSM-3 was that it's based on observable behaviors. So it's something that we can all agree on. So it's not uh, obscure. So, But observable behaviors means if you can observe someone's behavior, <laughs> then you can check off the diagnosis. So for example, I mentioned the four components of malignant narcissism. One of them is antisocial disorder, or what's called psychopathy or sociopathy. And so but the first diagnostic criteria is frequently lies. Okay, well, I haven't interviewed Donald Trump, but can I check the box that frequently lies for the man who is the most documented liar in recorded human history? And I mean that not as a, a like hyperbole. Can you name me another human being who's been documented in history <laughs> telling more lies? I think I can check that box. These are all observable behaviors. They're all, all observing. Yeah, you give you give an analogy in the film that um, if an orthopedic surgeon were watching a, a football game and saw someone's knee hyperextend, an orthopedic surgeon could tell you without ever examining the person, just seeing it from a distance, oh, that guy has, got a, has been injured severely and pretty much know what the problem is. And so that's kind of what you're saying with respect to your expertise. You can observe the behavior without examining someone. It's provided you have a sufficient amount of data and examples of the behavior. You can tell if someone's a narcissist. And we have more examples of behavior in him than I have probably of all my patients put together. I mean, I don't, I have, I don't watch, you know, hundreds of hours of my patients' behavior on TV. I don't, mon I don't troll their social media. You know, I don't um, read biographies of them. I mean, we have so much data. Look, it's not just the mental health professionals. One of the best things that George Conway did on Twitter was he just tweeted out the diagnostic criteria for, you know, antisocial precise order and narcissistic person. And when you just read the plain common language, so it'll exploits and violates the rights of others. Okay. That's one of the other criteria after lying for, for antisocial. Well, does someone who, you know, sexually assaulted at least 28 women that we know of violate the rights of others? Obviously, right? I mean, you don't need to have a PhD 
to know that. This is in the public domain, is the point, is that we can all see that he meets these diagnostic criteria. At this point, it's not a throw my sheepskin on the wall. You tell me if he violates the right. If someone who's Trump University had to fork over $25 million because he was scamming students. He's never paid his workers. He always goes bankrupt and, and uh, uh, welches on his loans. He cheats on his taxes. Is this someone who, you know, uh, violates norms and laws, someone who exploits the, the rights of others? Of course. I mean, that's the core of who he is. I don't think he's had a, ever had a non-antisocial moment in his life. He's like the godfather on steroids, you know? You're reminding me of a story that Jonathan Carl told us on this podcast. Uh, John Carl is the uh, chief White House correspondent for ABC News, and he tells a story in his book about a, a early press conference in the Trump presidency where a, a Orthodox Jewish a journalist stood up and asked the question uh, having to do with um, some recent anti-Semitic attacks in the country. And Donald Trump and his question was really about what is the government going to do? What, what is going to be the administration's response to this? And Donald Trump's response to it instantly was, well, I am the least anti-Semitic person you have ever met. And I am the least racist person you ever met. And it was a really peculiar moment hearing John Carl describe the story. And it, you just made me think of that and giving like ways in which a narcissist thinks, because the question was a sincere one about what will be the government's response to these kinds of, of attacks. But he took it, the question as if it was about him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think the other piece of it too is, and this is where the racism and the anti-immigrant comes in. Well, these malignant narcissists, the other component we haven't talked about is paranoia. This is a very important component. You know how he always feels like he's the victim, right? Everyone's always unfair to him. He's always griping, you know, bitching, moaning. I mean, you know, it's just disgusting, actually. You know, it's revolting. You know, what is it like Bill, Bill Maher, who always calls him a whiny little bitch? I mean, you know, come on. I mean, <laughs> but, but then also the, what he's saying is untrue. You know what I mean? That these things aren't being rigged against him or these people aren't, you know, corrupt. Uh, uh, but, but he feels like they are. He feels like they're attacking him. But also because he's antisocial and sadistic, then he takes action to destroy them. Okay, so the people he wants to destroy, this is what happened to Stalin. You, you don't want to be Stalin's 17th minister of agriculture. Do you know what happened to the first 16? I guess he killed them. Killed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, like, and that's what's happening in the churn in the White House, okay, is that nobody can be loyal enough except, you know, Hope Hicks and Jared. You know, I mean, that's what they're going to be left with, you know, in the situation room with the nuclear codes at the, at, at the end. But it is this way in which they consume people and destroy people, in part because of the paranoia. If you're not. Uh, you know what Saddam Hussein said, another malignant narcissist? He's, he, he, he used to do that, just execute, you know, the government over and over again. <laughs> and he said, you know why? Because I know when people are going to plot to kill me before they do. <laughs> <How about that>? <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, though, because this is what I'm really curious about. You've got these four components of malignant narcissism, uh, narcissism, paranoia, antisocial personality disorder, and sadism. Sadism is and, very important. And, and you've got, you know, in your profession – you all are instructed, look, you can't really help them stay clear, okay? Here's what I want to understand. When I look at these four components, right. what is it then that attracts people to malignant narcissists? That's a great question. Because I, I, I don't understand question. that. Nothing here seems good. So I'm trying to understand what's the attraction. Because, yeah, th think about uh, you know, why these people love these big military parades, a thousand-year Reich. You know, people identify with the grandiosity. They identify with the grandiose delusion. And is that because deep down they feel small and so this makes them feel big? 
Well, and also they, maybe they feel entitled and they think others are taking what belongs to them. You know, I mean, I think there is an element of white privilege. Come on, let's face it. You know, this is ours and, you know, you come for it. We're taking out, getting our shotguns. And guess what? The rainbow Obama coalition is demographically coming for America. They're basically metaphorically poking their shotguns out the window. They're over our dead bodies. You know, you, we, we had uh, Joseph Yuzinski uh, on who was talking about conspiracy theories a couple weeks back. And what I thought was interesting about what he had to say was conspiracy theories are for losers. They're for people who have lost and he's justifying <laughs> why they've lost. Definitely. He doesn't mean definitely. that in a pejorative way. He means no, no, just they've lost. Accurate, accurate. But what's interesting to me about the malignant narcissist is that their paranoia – allows them to continue to drive the conspiracy theory, even if they've won, it's that these people are against us and that, that paranoia, that's what pushes the conspiracy theory forward. Would that be fair? Well, that, that well, that's necessary has, for has them. Trump, has Trump ever not been aggrieved? I, I mean, you know, you know, even his inauguration day speech was like angry. It's a funny, you know, one of the people who we've debated with who really pissed me off is, is a famous psychiatrist named Al Francis, who actually went on a lot of uh, talk shows and, and saying that he, that Trump was not a malignant narcissist, not a narcissist. And he was one of the people on the DSM committee who wrote the criteria. And he said, because to be a narcissist, you'd have to have experienced significant distress. And he's not experiencing distress. He's, you know, this is, and, he, and he's right in one sense. What's really bad about these personalities is it's egocentric for them. None of, you know, they don't feel guilty about anything they do. You know, none of the destruction, none of the people he's killed. He hasn't, he hasn't lost a moment's sleep over any of those 200,000 people. So in that way, they're kind of insulated. But on the other hand, because of his paranoia and agitation, and the other thing is I think he's very hypomanic. We should talk about that. So that turbocharges all of this with a certain energy. You know, he's tweeting aggrieved tweets, you know, 90 tweets about how fucking pissed off he is and how persecuted he is and fuck uh, yeah you piece of uh, you know the money losing New York Times uh, it's like the energy it takes you know what I mean yeah. to hate that many people that much of the time you know I think that's actually the under discussed also component that it's this personality disorder you know like one of the reasons he's the worst one is he has the energy to be the worst one like all the great entrepreneurs that's what I wrote about in my first book The Hypomanic Edge you know that the great entrepreneurs had that hypomanic energy they're driven by that energy he has it you yeah. know and and so it's just but it's all being channeled towards hate and destruction it's like a death ray yeah it's so clear that everything is a PR problem to solve rather than a governance problem. Uh, it's about the PR. It's about how he's going to be perceived, not whether or not the problem is going to be solved. I mean, that's where the energy is on, on mm -hmm. the on the public relations. Following up on what Perry was asking about, you know, why people are attracted to this. Uh, talk about the Ash experiment from the film, which was an experiment yeah, that um, that sort of reveals how people respond to social pressure. I, th I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think has been uh, ultimately so destructive is the, the fabric of reality seems to have dissolved, right? I mean, you know, we used to have the same facts and we could come to our own judgments. But what, we, what we're discovering is the perception of facts themselves can be socially manipulated. And this actually goes back to a classic experiment from the 1960s, I think, uh, the Ash experiment, where basically they have this, this subject comes into a room and there's four lines and one of them is clearly... A, you know, different size than the other ones, mm -hmm. you know, which one, you know, these doesn't belong, the long one, you know, <laughs> like people get it right 100% of the time. No one ever failed that test. Okay. Right. And I should mention for the benefit of the audience, because there's no visual here. I mean, I saw yeah. this experiment 
there is absolutely no question. There is on no planet is not one line longer than the other. <laughs> it's good you say that. And, and Billy, hats off to, I should say this more during the film, you know, you've mentioned parts of the film, but hats off to Dan Partland, the director. He's the one that put all this together. And, yeah. you know, I'd never seen movies of the Ash Experiment, you know, so as a mm-hmm. psychologist, you know, I just read, a, it's a paragraph or, you know what I mean, or, or a chapter, but, you know, but it, to me, it was delightful to see the film of the original. <laughs> I love, I love the guy I on the look space. Yeah. You're right. It's like not by a, not by a country mile, right? You know, it's like, but then, you know, they, they do it a different way where they have three different people who the subject thinks they're subjects too, but actually they're what we call Confederates. They're working with the, you know, the experimenter and all the Confederates are saying, Oh no, it's obvious that obviously this one, obviously this one. And like 40% of the time they're like, yeah, I guess it is. I guess it's that other one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I say that too. And like, he actually sees the shorter line as being longer. And that's really scary because we say like, well, come on, how can these people who watch Fox News actually believe that, you know, QAnon is maybe a thing, the saying maybe it's, 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 and so, and of course there's a lot of other social information loop ways in which things can be manipulated, but just the Ash experiment showed how uh, our perception of reality is fragile. And that's a little scary because one of the things that the narcissist does, and I really want to, this is what have been the most important concepts is Robert Lifton, a famous psychiatrist at Yale, who's been studying totalitarians for 50 years. He's like 90 years old now. His, he developed a concept called malignant normality. And malignant normality is when a malignant narcissist, like a Hitler, who has a very disturbed and disordered and destructive view of reality, imposes that view of reality on an entire society so that they actually becomes imbibed you know, where to a greater or lesser extent, it basically becomes the new reality of the society. And that's called malignant normality. Uh, this malignant narcissist essentially imposed his disordered reality onto an entire society. And it can happen. Our entire reality testing can break down and mass. Well, and I think that's one of the most interesting things because, you know, we'll post this uh, podcast the day before the election. So shortly thereafter, we'll know but we'll be left with tens of millions of people that will still be stuck in a malignant normality. Is that right? Am I saying that right? That, that he has distorted their perspective of what's occurring in the world. But even if he leaves the scene, we're still left with a population that thinks that the enemy is immigration or, you know, the enemy is QAnon or, you know, the enemy is some wild theory that excuses really bad governance and bad operating. Yeah, I'm very worried that, that domestic terrorism is going to get much more pronounced and more sophisticated. You know, it, when you have Mike Flynn giving the QAnon sign, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we could be talking about some like rogue nuclear warhead. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, who knows how high up this goes? You know, so with these uh, Republicans, everything is projection, right? So the whole McCarthy hearings, you know, are you or have you ever been, you know, a R- Russian communist agent? Well, that's actually the question that we'll need to be asking all Republicans. I think that there really are plants now, you know, in this sort of conspiracy world who I think could be very dangerous and maybe very sophisticated. Talk about um, why you believe or what you believe regarding this election and what will happen if there is a repudiation of Trump by the American people? How do, how do you think with his personality disorder, he'll respond? In the movie, they talk about yeah. um, how Plato said, you know, democracies yeah. ultimately become autocracies. 
And yeah, I'm just yeah, curious yeah, as to, yeah. with a personality like yeah. President Trump's, how far you think he can extend that disorder onto the, really onto our, our own institutions? You know, this is going to be the ultimate stress test. And I think that's why we're all so stressed. Because given his personality, there is no limit. There's no limit to what he's uh, able or, or willing to do. And also, he has conspirators. He has conspirators in, you know, Bill Barr. He has conspirators in the uh, state legislature in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm very worried about the state legislature in Pennsylvania. I, I feel like they're going to try something to stop the counting of the, the ballots. Um, so I think that the we really are facing, there, there's going to be an attempted coup. I think that's the point. It's not just Trump. He has conspirators. Okay, He has Republican legislatures who have already talked about, you know, sending faithless electors. We have Republican representatives. Uh, uh, Jamie Raskin, a congressman that I've uh, we've worked with at Duty to Warn um, and uh, who, who we uh, have great love and affection for here in Maryland. Um, great constitutional scholar. And he's gone uh, on the record saying that he's alarmed. He's alarmed that Republicans in Congress are talking about, you know, making a plan to elect Trump. Right. Because actually, if there's a dispute, it goes to the House of Representatives. And believe it or not, we don't have the majority in the House of Representatives because each state gets a vote. And therefore, the Republicans could in in the House could vote Trump president. And they're actually, you know, greasing the wheels. okay, to kind of make that happen. So so this is, I think, what's really dangerous is he, of course, will make a play for the ball. And so the, the play could work. And I think that's really the most important thing. We all need to keep our eye on that ball uh, at the current moment. As much as I love the plug for the film, I think that's more important. <laughs> if if um, they make this play and they're not successful because, let's say, there's yeah. a full repudiation, what happens with a personality like Trump after let's say president Biden is sworn in, where does he go? Does, does, does that personality need to keep feeding the beast? So he's looking for every media outlet that he can. He's got Twitter. I think that a lot of people, and I'm certainly one of them, I'm hoping for less chaos in my life. Yes. I'm just wondering if it's a bit of a, a fool's errand for me to hope that come January 20th of 2021, will have less chaos. What happens with a personality type like Trump? Well, I think, and this is part of the things, he feeds on the chaos. Well, you know, and, and the reason that uh, I, I asked that question and the way we're divided and what that means for us, there's a great story in the film about the chimpanzee project that Dr. Jane Goodall is studying and what happens when we become divided. Can you talk about that story a little bit? And- yeah, I was so grateful to Dan Partland that he put that in the film. Uh, I didn't know he was going to do that. Um, when I wrote my original uh, book, The Hypomanic Edge, what I was interested in is uh, people who have a temperament, which I believe actually Donald Trump has. I also wrote a book about Bill Clinton. I believe he has this temperament. It's called hypomania. And these people who are hypomanic are very aggressive, very expansive, very grandiose, but they have very creative, they're very driven, they're very uh, action-oriented, and they are very charismatic, and they inspire people. And so they do have a vision, you know, like entrepreneurs have a vision, and they can get people behind it and make something happen, make something happen out of nothing. So people who have that kind of temperament, 
can be a, a force for good or a force for evil, depending on what kind of leader they are. But I think that kind of leader, if you look at the roots of where that kind of leader comes from, it actually goes all the way back to chimpanzees. Ch chimpanzees are actually our closest relatives. So we share 98% of our DNA with them. And when Jane Goodall uh, started observing chimpanzees, it was very interesting. You know, she brought back this lovely footage where you really saw how human they were, you know, that they were these, uh, these families and, you know, she became friends with them and, you know, she documented these very complicated social relationships and, you know, intimate and touching moments. It was very beautiful. And then among the males, what you saw is this competition for leadership, for dominance, okay? Um, and they called it display behavior. They called it display behavior because it was, in fact, a display. You know, he would, like, beat his chest or, you know, pick up dirt and throw it in the air, you know, or take a heavy rock and throw it in the stream, you know, like some kind of, like, medieval jousting contest or something to show who's, like, more powerful and more dominant and that, they, that the hierarchy would kind of be established. But nobody got hurt. It, it was because this is all within group behavior. And these people have to uh, sort of count on each other to survive. So they can't just be killing each other. But then when the troop gets too big, and this was where Jane Goodall left and new people started observing, then they separated into two groups. Now these two groups, we observe a totally different type of, you know, humanoid behavior, uh, primate behavior, which is between group behavior. Because what happens is in one of the groups, one of these sort of energetic, dominant hyped up males gets the other males hyped up and excited and marches them down to the edge of the other group's territory. And they wait for a lone male to come by you know, kind of an ambush and they run down the hill and, and beat them savagely to death, which is not like chimpanzees. They're actually very gentle animals, but they're in this like homicidal kind of um, frenzy. So basically a kind of hypomatic charismatic chimpanzee alpha male gets the other alpha males excited about basically going on a war against the other troop, where they basically systematically kill the males and take over their territory and their females. And so that troop wins. The troop that follows that aggressive, expansive, murderous leader, their genes go on and the others don't. And I think that right now white Americans are seeing Donald Trump as that chimpanzee, that he is essentially the leader who is allowing them to be the conquerors when they feel like they're about to be the conquered. And why the fuck are we about to be the conquered when we're supposed to be the fucking conquerors? We conquered this fucking continent, right? So they're ready. They don't want to be the conquered tribe. So Donald Trump is saying, no, I'll, you'll be the conquering one. And that forgives all, not just a multitude of sins. That forgives all sins. Right. All sins. And that's why all the behavior is excused is because they believe that their entire future is binary and it's wrapped up in just this. Exactly. One. Exactly. But that actually takes us to an interesting point because here the people in both groups get to decide whether the leader of that one group because really president trump has said i'm really only a leader of this group he's yes. not tried to become a right. leader of america no. he has said these are my people right. so the the people of both groups get to decide and uh, who the leader of of his group is and i think that's interesting because it might allow, maybe this is the optimist in me, but it might allow a de-escalation yeah. of where we are. Because if, if it doesn't de-escalate, if we continue to be two different factions, I don't know how that gets resolved yeah. in a calm way. I, I think there's two possible futures, and, and maybe the truth is going to be somewhere in between. Uh, one is I always think that, you know, what happened to the thousand-year Reich? It's not here anymore. You know, that these balloons do get punctured. You know, these wounds do get lanced. 
uh, and I think when the when the strong man goes down, uh, you know, suddenly you know we're the Saddam loyalists now, you know, mm. and, and and I think that to be honest, the most important thing is to take down the strong man. But I do also have I think share some of the fears and thoughts that you were sharing that we almost need a denazification program <laughs> that, that that there really are you know QAnons. You know, among us and, and, and in the uh, government. It'll be interesting to see how people identify, assuming that there's a repudiation of Donald Trump. You know, I, I think, you know, he got 63 million votes last time. I think he increases that to 70, 71 million, but I think it's a mm. blowout because I think 160 million people are going to vote. Um, yeah. And all the statistics my, look good. My guess is that when when you see that happen, when he loses by approximately 20 million votes, you won't be able to find 500 people that said they were in that group. And, and, and Mm -hmm. that's interesting. The psychology of people wanting to associate with winners. One of the conversations I've had with friends in the past with respect to Trump was that um, had he not been elected president, had he instead been offered a job in the cabinet or any kind of uh, governmental position, (laughs) the reality is, is he would very, likely not be able to get a security clearance, which is an amazing thing to to contemplate. His security clearance exists by virtue of the American people duly electing him to have it. But if he had been hired for a governmental job, he he would not have gotten one. And it made me think of something from the film that I wanted you to speak about, uh, the personal reliability program that the United States Air Force has. So uh, just in brief, it's an evaluation, a psychological evaluation designed to ensure that only the most emotionally reliable people are assigned to work around our nuclear arsenal. Tell us about that. One of the people who have been involved in this movement is a psychiatrist named Steve Buser, and he had an op-ed in the New York Times where he said <clears throat> that he was a psychiatrist in the Air Force, and he had to evaluate people's fitness you know, for duty. Uh, but there was something called the PHP, the Personal Reliability Program, PR, uh, where you had to sort of, as a psychiatrist, evaluate someone who had the highest fitness if they could be anywhere near a nuclear weapon, even if they're just driving, filling the gas tank of the truck or, you know, fix, <laughs> just anywhere, even on the base with it or whatever, you know, like, and, and it was like, it wasn't just that they don't have a mental disorder. It was like, you know, high level of integrity, high level of conscientiousness, you know, so it's something that suggested they ever lied or had a problem with the law or substance abuse or, you know, like, forget it, they're out. Like they, and so he's basically saying that Donald Trump would basically never be able to set foot near a nuclear weapon, you know, because he would automatically, absolutely, he could say, as someone who gave this test, I can tell you without any doubt, he would fail the evaluation, you know, uh, if you hear about, you know, 23 people are accusing him of of sexual assault. Yeah. No, you're not in the program. (laughs) Right. So he he couldn't drive the truck. And yet here he is uh, having exactly uh, a veto proof, unfettered access to the most powerful nuclear weapons arsenal in the world. That was our biggest paranoid fear, you know, when we started this movement. So that was one of our focuses and yeah, but that's exactly the, the case. Doctor, I just want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, how can people find more about your work? You're an author. Um, how can people understand more about your past and, and, and the work that you've done? Oh, that's very nice of you. Well, you can always go to my website, johngartner.com. So I have my own personal website. Uh, but I think right now, uh, I, I really appreciate what you're saying about the film hashtag unfit. 
I think it's really worth watching. I, I know that sounds like a, a, a plug, but I think I'm being objective about it. I, I, that's, that's why you guys have me at the show. You love the movie. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have known each other. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we met <laughs> via the movie. But uh, I, I, I think that uh, it's, it's important to understand, you know, the psychology of him more than ever right now, because it's going to have a huge effect on what happens in our future. So that was a lot to absorb, huh, Perry? Yeah, there was a lot there. Uh, I thought Trump was just an ignorant, impulsive, dishonest, constitutionally illiterate vulgarian. But now I got to get my arms around malignant narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's too harsh. Hard. No, no. I, look, I think that <clears throat> and this is why you and I wanted to do this one right before the election. Because I think that that's what all of this is about. This is not about carrying the water for judges or for a lower marginal tax rate, you know, or for a specific immigration policy. This is about carrying the water for our institutions. And, you know, a malignant narcissist is simply not capable of doing that at any point and can't learn on the job. Yeah. I, I don't want to sound harsh, but I feel like, um, the things I just said, I mean, those are the adjectives available in the English language to fairly describe the behavior we've witnessed. And I, I'd be completely comfortable if anyone wanted to present a rebuttal to me. I would listen quietly. A rebuttal, like you said, not on these policy preferences, which I think are intellectually defensible, but on the behavior and the, and the psychological um, uh, reality. Uh, there's, something, you know, there's something wrong here. And it's weird that people can't accept it or or maybe they do and they don't care. Yeah. I think that's why you and I are so interested in this election because this election is different than 2016. 2016 was, well, what's the best way for us to move forward? This really is about this election is only about who we are as a people. That's it. Yeah. I, you know, you and I often have the conversation um, about how you can't do a good deal with a bad person. And I firmly believe that 90% of life's problems can be avoided by just cultivating good taste in people. Whether it's in business or your personal life, you do not marry, date, or go into business with someone who's toxic or dysfunctional or dishonest um, or self-involved. And if you can just eliminate those kinds of people from your life, it eliminates most problems. Like, is it possible that the country can be in a dysfunctional relationship with a political leader? Yeah. And is that something that can be navigated during times where you have outside forces on it as well? You know, it isn't simply that this is an interpersonal relationship with a malignant narcissist as if you were married to this person or they were your best friend in the world. Yeah. Um, you have these outside forces of competition from other countries and forces of um, science and forces of a virus and, you know, forces of an economy that's struggling. And that's what's interesting is in all of these forces, is this really the relationship that we want? There's something else I want to key in on that, that he said when he was talking about the four different facets of malignant narcissism, one of the, one of them was antisocial personality. And the consequences of an antisocial personality are that 
you are willing to break or stretch rules or um, you're able to, to tolerate it in other people. And so I just want to run down a list here, like just to frame this and think about it, because I think it's very interesting. Let's take Paul Manafort, campaign chairman, Rick Gates, the deputy campaign chairman, Michael Flynn, national security advisor, Michael Cohen, personal uh, attorney, Ken Cousin, speechwriter, Roger Stone, political advisor and friend, George Papadopoulos, campaign advisor, Steve Bannon, chief strategist and White House advisor, Brad Parscale, uh, campaign manager, and Elliot Broidy, a key fundraiser. What all of those people have in common is that they have been either indicted and or convicted. Look, you and I have both hired people for our businesses, right? Like, how do you get it wrong that many times? Like, something weird, something, like, how do you misjudge that many people? And look, let's be fair. Some of the crimes here that these people have been, you know, in, either indicted or convicted of have nothing to do with Trump directly. There, there are some situations here where he's not involved. They're not camp- campaign-related. But my goodness, you know, I, I mean, I think I've in my life made an occasional misjudgment about a person, but how do you hire and be involved with this many people who are, or willing to engage in criminal activity. Any fair-minded person has to look at this and just wonder what the hell's going on. And I know, look, I'm an independent, I'm a political independent, and I would hold anyone accountable in public life that that behaved like this and, and had this kind of track record. But I know you well enough to know, even though you're a Democrat, you would hold any Democrat accountable if this was their hiring track record and kind of people they surrounded themselves with. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I absolutely would. And the reason that I would is really what we've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is I believe that tribalism is the quickest way to no longer hold your government accountable. And it's the fastest way to devalue your own vote. I believe that once you uh, tell the car dealer, I'm buying the car no matter what, um, you're the worst customer that that dealership will ever see. Uh, the best customer from the perspective of the dealership, the worst customer from the perspective of all customers. And um, we are customers. The government works for us. We don't work for the government. And I want to make sure that I'm able to hold them accountable. And the only way I'm going to do that is if my vote is free, yeah. if it's free from tribalism. And What's interesting about this personality disorder, this malignant narcissism, is that um, it attracts and is interested in people who think similarly. It's interested in people who are equally criminal or equally malignant or vicious, and it, um, it discards people who aren't. And that's what we've seen from him is we've seen both sides of that spectrum. We've seen people who were decent Americans who cared deeply about our institutions be discarded. And those who would break our institutions, we've seen them pulled even closer. And that's, that's why, that's why I think that I think, look, you know me, I love the marketing of all this. And I think that the Biden camp has done an incredible job of framing what this election is actually about. It's about the soul of our country. And we have this malignant narcissist 
who's at the center of the soul of the country right now. And the question that we have, the imperative question that we have is, what are we going to do about it? I, I thought what was fascinating, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. When Dr. Gartner said, well, when you're around a malignant narcissist, they cannot be treated. There's nothing that you can do for them. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. I was going to ask you the same question because he, he said that a person like this was irredeemable. And I have to admit that that grates on me a little bit because just from personal philosophy of mine, I, I just, I don't want to believe that anyone is irredeemable, but it was a very pessimistic um, conclusion, you know, that he as a professional psychotherapist said that he's never been able to help someone improve. I, I think it's really, um, yeah, I don't know what to think about it. I, I, I don't have any evidence to, to rebut him on that. I, I've never known anyone in my own life who was sort of a, you know, a, a narcissistic, crazy, toxic, dysfunctional person. And I've known a couple. I, I've never known any of them to have changed. Yeah, I think what's interesting about it, because I thought a lot about it after he said that. And what fascinated me was if you just run through the mechanics of how we make change, you know, we make change because people who are close to us will say, Hey, that, that behavior, that wasn't, that wasn't right. I didn't appreciate when you did that, or you might want to rethink that. And a malignant narcissist um, views uh, any claim of bad behavior by those around them as disloyal. Mm -hmm. And so they're discarded. And so yeah. all of the narrative that they hear over time becomes more and more insular. It only becomes their own thoughts because they won't have anyone around that doesn't agree with their own thoughts. And so I think what makes them irredeemable isn't that people can't change. It's that they've created a system to make sure that they don't hear anything that challenges their behavior. And that, that's what's so dangerous is that here we now know what we're getting. Mm -hmm in this election. And if we sign back up for this, boy, this says a lot more about us than it ever would about Donald Trump. You know, I circle back, you know, you talk about accountability a lot, which I really connect with. And I think that's what frustrates people or confuses a lot of people right now, because it's really not a, the conservative point of view or liberal point of view. It's, it's, will you hold leaders accountable? Will you, you know, do you hold people in your own life accountable? Would you allow a business partner to, to behave like this? You know, if you, we, you and I have served on corporate boards. If we were on the board of directors of a company and the CEO was behaving even one-tenth as erratically as this with the kind of decisions and name-calling and attacks and sort of just craziness and it hired, and, and hired so many high-level you know, high exec, executives in the, in the company that have been you know, had to be fired because they, they, they were indicted for crime. I mean, it's crazy, you know? And so it all, it all circles back to accountability. Are you willing, despite your partisan views to hold um, uh, leadership accountable? And if you're not, you're going to get the kind of leadership you deserve. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that um, the question is twofold, which is one, are you willing to hold leaders accountable? Two, are you willing to hold yourself accountable? For all the values that you've claimed, for the character that you say you believe in, are you willing to hold yourself accountable to that? You know, we have this idea, we tell people you shouldn't shortcut to achieve a goal. 
you shouldn't cheat to achieve a goal. You shouldn't lie to achieve a goal. Yeah. And are you willing at some point to say, well, I've got to hold myself accountable to that standard because I know he lies. I know he cheats. One of the go-to things people say is, is to point out how someone else has uh, also had an infraction similar to who it is they're defending, the whataboutism. So if this person did it, it's almost as if you're saying, well, is that okay? Well, if you're opposing it in that person, we agree. Yeah, that's right. I, I, you know, I worry that whataboutism is, is such a, um, a lazy deflection. It's how children think. That's right. It's, it's, right. it's, it's like, why did you do this? Well, Jenny did it. Yeah. It's like, well, okay. yeah, what, what are we doing okay. here? You okay. know? So yeah, we let's agree. have a real so, conversation. So we agree yeah. it's bad. Jenny yeah. shouldn't have okay. done it and you shouldn't right. have done it. That's right. And so I think that's, um, that's where we are. Well, what do you, how do you think this plays out now that we've drilled down on, you know, the, over the last several weeks about where we sit as a country, you know, we're now just a few days away from the election. Uh, how do you think this all comes out? What do you think America's soul really looks like? Well, I'm terrible at political predictions. <laughs> I have a terrible track record at this. But as of this recording this morning, the state of Texas has, in its early voting, surpassed 100% of the votes cast in total in 2016. And I just have to look at that and think, you know, what? that's weird. You know, something's happening. And so we're going to find out, you know, the American people are, are going to, you know, lay down the verdict. I will say this, I, where, where I differ with the experts is, you know, certainly, you know, it's going to take time to count all the votes, you know, which is always the case. You know, I mean, we should remind people that it's not the candidate that declares victory and it's not the networks that declare victory. It's, it's really about when the votes get counted. And that's always been the case, you know, the, the final tally uh, and, and the uh, election results aren't certified by the Secretary of State for days, sometimes weeks after, under normal circumstances. This year, what we have is just so much more mail-in ballots because of the pandemic, people not wanting to vote in person. So it's going to take a little bit longer. But I will say this, I, I think there's going to be more clarity. My prediction is that there's going to be more clarity on election night than people think. Even though we won't have a final count, I think certain states that are too close to call and certain states where there's real clarity in which direction it's going is going to give people an idea um, by next week whether or not Trump is reelected or whether Biden is going to be the next president. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I think we'll know sooner than... Uh, some of the pundits claimed. I, I think that we're going to see 155 million plus people vote. And I think that Donald Trump will increase the number of people who voted for him in 2016. Right. I think it will go from 63 million up to about 70 or 71 million. Yeah. But I think that the problem is for Trump, that is that Joe Biden is going to end up with 84 or 85 million votes. And um, I think that when it's all said and done, um, I think that this will be clear and it's be, and I'm, and I say that because I really do believe that, uh, young people and women are going to save the country from itself. I think that their empathy and connection with how to live in a community, um, is going to matter. And, um, that at the end of the day will save us.
Well, I will say this. If this was not, and you know this about me, any other conservative, if this was not this particular person, if this was any other conservative, any other Republican, I would not be this outspoken. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true about you. I mean, um, you know, whether it's McCain or Romney or George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bob Dole, uh, you can go back a long way. These were people that really loved the country and um, believed in, most importantly, in our institutions. And at every turn, Donald Trump has put them at risk. And given that he's a malignant narcissist, his ability to handle what's about to happen is going to be difficult for him and as a result, difficult for the country. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got. Uh, This has been the head and the heart. Uh, Remember, you can follow us on Spotify, Podcast One, Amazon Music, or Apple Podcasts. And uh, please subscribe and leave a comment. Let us know who you'd like us to interview. And follow us on Twitter at head underscore heart underscore pod. And please leave reviews. We'd like to thank Casey Morris, the world's best producer. Uh, We look forward to resuming this after the election. Thanks, everyone.